Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa podcast. Last episode, we examined the rule of Ashantahene Mensabonso, his attempts to implement liberalizing reforms informed by his ally and advisor, Owosuansa, as well as the rise of a hyper-conservative witch-hunting cult that promised to restore the fates of Ashantiman by overthrowing the Ashantahene and reverting to what they saw as the traditional status quo. In this episode, after surviving the cult's attack, Mensabonso will move deeper into his own paranoia, eventually leading to his downfall. Season 3, Episode 27, The Ashanti Civil War What must have been going through Mensabonso's head in 1880? A group of religious fanatics, to whom he had offered an open hand of support, had turned on him and made an attempt on his life. And the attempt was no joke. The Ashantahene had escaped assassination literally by a hair's length with gunfire coming so close to his head that he could physically feel the wind coming off the bullets. Not only did he have guns pointed at him, not only did he feel the force of death itself whiz only an inch past his head, he was then forced to run away from an entire army of people that wanted him dead. In the aftermath of the traumatic 1880 Kumasi Palace siege, Mensabonso was, understandably, a bit beyond shaken. In modern medical parlance, the Ashantahene was facing intense post-traumatic stress. It was, in a word, harrowing. In the days following his escape from and defeat of the Doman Kama, something within Mensabonso changed dramatically. While he had already been something of a harsh, no-nonsense guy, he hadn't ruled Ashantiman as a tyrant per se. In fact, you could argue that he kind of did the opposite, since he had loosened many of the criminal punishments in the Ashanti law code. But the Mensa Bonso that emerged from the palace siege of 1880 was a different man. Having witnessed the power of betrayal and conspiracy, and having looked death itself in the eye, the new Mensa Bonso emerged as an infinitely more brutal, significantly more uncompromising, and intensely paranoid man. From now on, Mensa Bonso was not willing to play games when it came to fulfilling his goal. Collect taxes, refill Ashanti coffers, and reassert the authority of the Ashantihene. Now, there was no forgiveness. If you were even suspected of withholding money or trying to evade taxes, you were as good as dead. While he was far from the first Ashantihene to act with some degree of malice, the cruelty that Mensabonso showed towards his own people was unprecedented. Under the new post-1880 administration, Mensabonso turned to the only remaining people he could trust, the palace guard. Everyone else, from the army, to the Omanhenes, to the Insafohene bureaucrats, to Owosuansa, to even his own family, he could confide in none of them. The palace guard quickly emerged as the new arm of state. The populace of Ashantiman no longer lived under the watchful eye of a constitutionally limited elected monarch. No, Mensabonso ruled Ashantiman like an organized crime syndicate. He was known to arbitrarily raise taxes at any given moment in an attempt to squeeze revenue out of his tired subjects. If you resisted or even just ran out of money to pay him, his response was disturbing. In fact, it could be so disturbing that I think it warrants a bit of a cautionary statement. The following will contain some references to sexual assault, so if that's not cool with you, I advise you skip ahead by about a minute. While execution surely awaited you if you were suspected of withholding funds, that was only the beginning of your problems. Specifically, Mensabonso's guards developed a reputation for targeting the families of those associated with people who were deemed as criminal. 
The wives and daughters of alleged tax evaders were often raped and then also killed by the guards. And, according to one account by a later Chantehene, Mensa Bonso himself often took part in the sexual violation of the dead men's spouses and daughters. Now, that last part about him personally getting involved in the rapes might be propaganda, as the only real source for his personal partaking is one particular source written by a later Shanti king who had great incentive to exaggerate his predecessor's wrongdoings. But the rest is pretty well documented. And whether Mensabonso was personally taking part in, or just ordering for these atrocities to occur, seems like a pretty minor distinction when you consider how awful it is either way. Mensabonso also had a reputation for other licentious behaviors. You see, starting in 1881, Mensabonso embarked on a scandalous affair with who else but his younger brother's wife. When the brother, who for his part was a well-respected and important Omanhene, discovered the affair, he threatened to blow the whistle on Mensabonso and expose the scandal to the public. Affairs were a scandalous thing in the Ashanti Empire, but remember, incest was a far larger taboo, and the Ashanti definition of incest was quite inclusive. Step-siblings and in-laws were within the Ashanti cultural definition of family, and therefore partaking in a sexual relationship with one was tantamount to incest, blood-related or not. However, Mensabonso's brother had miscalculated. Rather than cowing the Ashantahene into submission, Mensabonso and his lover-slash-sister-in-law decided to strike back. The adulterous duo concocted a flimsy accusation of treason against the king's brother, and had him swiftly executed after a brief and quiet trial. Regardless, the high profile of the executed brother ensured that neither this affair of state abuse nor the king's actual affair could stay unnoticed forever. Despite the immoral and brutal nature of his despotic rule, Mensabonso's new style of governing seemed to be working quite well, financially at least. By 1883, the Ashanti government was finally back in the black, for the first time since the Third Anglo-Ashanti War. The indemnity to the British was close to being paid off in full, and diplomatic relations with the British resumed. At one point, the British and Ashanti monarchies exchanged diplomatic gifts, with Mensabonso sending Queen Victoria a ceremonial axe, while the Ashantahene allowed a group of British merchants to set up shop in the crucial northern trade city of Salaga. In a way, Mensabonso had successfully emulated his idol, Kwako Joa I. Through direct force of arms and coercion, Mensabonso had asserted his power, moved Ashanti finances back in the right direction, pursued a pacifistic relationship with the British, and hadn't needed to ask anyone's permission to do it. But no matter how much he wished otherwise, Mensabonso wasn't Kwako Joa. He lacked the old king's charisma, intelligence, and most importantly, his military connections. While Kwako Joa was a well-respected war hero, a proven commodity whose soldiers, generals, and civilians alike could all view with admiration, Mensabonso was just some guy. He had never even served in the military, much less cemented the status of war hero. Not to mention, Kwako Joa's clout with the military class went beyond his experience as a war hero. Throughout his reign, Kwako Joa had made sure to actively reward the military with bonuses, resources, and promotions to keep them on his good side. Remember, at one point he had allowed the Omanhene of Achimanso, Owosu Koko, to practically run the empire as his second-in-command in exchange for the loyalty of the army he commanded. This is something that even Mensabonso's elder brother understood well. But Mensabonso seemed to believe that a ragtag group of palace guards and executioners was more than sufficient enough of a force to run his empire. And, so long as there was no organized resistance against his rule, 
this was the case. But Mensa Bonzo's villainous and scandalous behavior ensured that the rise of organized resistance was an inevitability. This is exactly what happened in 1883, the year when everything would start to go under for the Ashantahene. We'll be back after a quick break. How are University of Notre Dame faculty and students working to be a force for good in the world? Listen to Notre Dame stories to find out. Through expert interviews and captivating stories, listeners gain an inside perspective on the global and domestic challenges the university is working to solve. Subscribe to Notre Dame Stories wherever you get your podcasts. The events of the year kicked off with a shockingly mundane event. In January, Mensa Bonso decided to raise some money by leveraging some trumped-up criminal charges against the son of an important Omanhene. Remember, by this point in time, criminal fines were one of the main revenue sources for Mensa Bonso's perpetually empty-pocketed government. So, when there weren't enough crimes being committed, Mensa Bonso had to invent some himself. Until 1883, this method had proved pretty reliable. He would invent a charge, then threaten the alleged criminals with execution and harsh punishment for their families if they didn't just pay a simple fine. Most people decided that, well, it was easier to just pay the fine than risk death, allowing Mensa Bonso's classic extortion scheme to continue unabated. But it all came tumbling down when Mensa Bonso tried to extort the son of the Omanhene of Dadiasi, a small town just north of Juaben. The Omanhene had already paid several of these exploitative fees, and when Mensa Bonso came asking again in 1883, he declared that he would sooner die than be extorted any further. When Mensa Bonso sent a small contingent of palace guards to either collect the fee or kill the man if they couldn't, they were routed by a local militia of just under 6,000 men who rallied to the Omanhene's banner. After a short skirmish, Mensa Bonso's guards were routed. The success of the Dereasehene proved that Mensa Bonso was not an insurmountable force, and as a result, provoked further rebellions throughout Shantemon. By the end of January, several important Omanhenes declared that they would no longer pay Mensa Bonso's extortion fees. Most prominently, one member of the Kotoko Council, the King of Bekwai, declared his disdain for Mensa Bonso and rose up in arms. At first, these rebellions were spontaneous, they were wildcats, unplanned, disconnected, and without any united leadership. But this all changed in February, when the rebellion catalyzed into two distinct movements. Owosu Koko, the now elderly general and Omanhene of Achiamanso, was the leader of one of these movements. Owosu Koko, whose name has come up quite a bit in our previous episodes, had been waiting eagerly for his son, Kwako Joa II, to take over the golden stool from Mensa Bonso. Remember, the deal with both Kakari and later Mensa Bonso's rule had been that they were supposed to be temporary regents for the then child, Kwako Joa II. Well, Kwako Joa II was now 22 more than old enough to take over. So not only was Mensa Bonzo's rule unpopular, but there was also a ready-made and more legitimate alternative option just sitting in the royal palace. Alongside Koko, who himself commanded a fairly formidable number of men in what was essentially a private army, many other Omanhenes and Ansafohenes who were tired of the Ashantihenes' despotic violence and disproving of his personal conduct rose up in arms. The bulk of this movement was made up by the so-called Nkwankwa, or Young Men. 
As the name implies, this group was composed of men mostly in their 20s and early 30s, most of whom were either young nobles who were set to inherit an Obanhene position in the future, had recently acquired jobs in the Ashanti bureaucracy, or were currently undergoing apprenticeships to earn a future career in the system. The despotic nature of Mensabonso's later rule had reduced the need for these types of mid-level civic positions, while his notorious fiscal conservatism had resulted in a reduce of the revenue flow toward these branches of government. As a result, many of these men were laid off, or saw their salaries cut dramatically. So when the walls of Mensabonso's rule came tumbling down, and rebellion was in the air, the Nkwankwa quickly and enthusiastically joined its ranks. As we'll see, they would also become the most ardent and radical members of Owosukoko's faction. Throughout February, this coalition of disgruntled Ashanti elites gathered with their personal guards and private armies and delivered a petition to Mensa Bonso. While there were many points within, the list of demands offered a simple ultimatum. Mensa Bonso had to make an official oath conceding much of his power offering the Ashanti Manchiamu a veto for all laws that the king passed, Ashanti Manchiamu approval for all fines and fees levied by the states, and demanding Kotoko approval for all legal cases involving executions. If Mensabonso refused to accept these conditions, then they would impeach him and replace him with the heir, Kwakojoa II. These demands were harsh, and nobody realistically expected that Mensabonso would accept. So, imagine their shock when Mensabonso replied that he'd think about it. So, was this matter going to resolve peacefully? Well, no. As some spies and the royal executioners soon revealed, Mensabonso was not making a genuine good-faith effort to negotiate with his political adversaries. Rather, he was just buying time to hatch a plan for their destruction. As Koko and his supporters waited for the king to reply to their ultimatum, Mensabonso and the palace guard were putting their plan into action. Their scheme was Bond villain-esque. He would lure Koko and the other leaders of the rebellion into a building under the auspices of negotiation, only to make an excuse to step outside, and then set off the rigged piles of gunpowder hidden in the building's ceiling. When Koko's spies discovered the deceptive scheme behind the offer to negotiate, he and his supporters stormed the palace, seized all of the royal stools and artifacts, and declared Mensabonso's deposition. By this point, even the palace guards and royal executioners gave up the fight. Knowing that he was defeated, Mensabonso and his mother, Afwakobi, abandoned the palace and fled. Eventually, the former royal family arrived in the small palace of Abrade, on the fringes of the British protectorate. Due to the friendly relationship that the two had pursued with the British, the Gold Coast colonial government decided to allow them to stay under their auspices. The mother and son lived in Abrade for the rest of their lives, adjusting from their once-pampered royal lifestyle to a quiet new life as impoverished commoners, living off a pittance of British stipend money. Kobe died soon after her exile in 1884, while Mezzabonso lived in quiet poverty until 1896. Oh, and in case you're wondering, the king's advisor from last episode, Uwosu Ansa, had long since fallen out of Mezzabonso's good graces, and exiled himself to Cape Coast prior to the Ashantahene's fall from power. He died there of a fever in 1884. If you want to learn more about the life of this spectacular and fascinating Ashanti diplomat and statesman, we are releasing a second premium episode as part of a mini-series where we cover the back half of his life on the show's Patreon. If you're interested in learning about how Wansa fell out with the British colonial office, came to reconnect with his Ashanti roots, mourned the tragic death of his family, and rose to become a top advisor of Kofi Kakari and Mensa Bonso, or if you just want to support the show and the free education we provide, then please support the show at patreon.com slash historyofafrica. 
And to those of you already supporting the show, thank you for helping me keep the lights on. It really means a lot. In the meantime, things are getting out of control in Komasi. You see, Mensabonso's forceful style of government had ensured that, for many of Komasi's denizens, force was the only thing keeping them in line. With the king deposed and the golden stool briefly empty, many of the city's inhabitants, including many within Koko's army, decided that now was a great time to go on a destructive rampage. A small minority of the Nkwankwa had come to the decision that, rather than a mere change in kingship, that the position of Ashantahene should just be abolished altogether. The majority within this small sub-faction of the Nkwankwa supported a form of confederal system, allowing the Ashantaman Shamu, and to a lesser extent the Mpanyimfo, to rule Ashantaman directly. An even smaller group, a fringe group within a fringe group, supported a form of republicanism, demanding that not only should the Ashantahene, but the whole concept of kingship and nobility should be abolished altogether. Others among the Nkwankwa had no firm ideology opposed to Kwakwajoba II or his father, but rather just took the chaos as an opportunity to spitefully destroy buildings associated with Mensabonso, or to opportunistically loot for valuables. During the ensuing riot, much of Mensabonso's work in rebuilding Komasi was undone. The partially rebuilt royal palace was once again reduced to ash, along with many other important buildings. In an attempt to end the chaos, Koko rushed to convene the Ashantimanshamu. There, Mensabonso was officially impeached in absentia, and Kwakojowa II was officially confirmed as the new Ashantahene. With his son finally entrenched in a position of power, Koko mobilized his army to crush the rebellious Nkwankwa, which he did with brutal success. So, with Mensabonso exiled and Kwakojowa II on the Golden Stool, will peace return to the Ashanti Empire? Well, of course not. While the city of Komasi itself had been largely purged of anti-Koko elements, the provinces were another story. There, the Omanhenes called out for a new Ashantahene, or, in a sense, an old one. They pined for the reinstallment of Ashantahene Kofi Kakari. Yes, Kofi Kakari. Remember him? I told you he'd be back. When we last saw the former Ashantahene, it was 1874. The Ashanti had just been brutally defeated in the Sagrenti or Third Anglo-Ashanti War, and much of Komasi had been leveled by the British invaders. The Ashanti Manchiamu, desperate for someone to scapegoat, chose to blame Kakari for the disaster, resulting in his impeachment, exile, and replacement with his brother Mensabonso. However, unlike Mensabonso's near-unanimous removal from office, Kakari's impeachment had been a lot less one-sided than you might expect. A sizable number of people stuck by Kakari, including many important government and military officials, while even many who voted for his removal were somewhat apprehensive about the prospect. Remember, unlike his brother, Kakari had always gone out of his way to make allies in the Ashanti military, ensuring that at least some of the people institution remained loyal to the old king. Additionally, Kakari had left the Golden Stool, continuing to profess his own innocence in the failure of the Third Anglo-Ashanti War. And, well, he had a point. He was right that many of the Insafohene and Omanhene who had impeached him were the same ones who had pressed him towards war in the first place. He was right that some of the failures in the war were out of his control, brought on by the insubordinate Joabenhene and Amankwasha's tactical failings. Sure, he had made plenty of mistakes, the largest of which, which directly led to his impeachment, was his looting of valuables from the royal mausoleum, but there was plenty of blame to go around. Many people had also missed the old king's relatively easygoing personality, 
Sure, he was a little bit of a philanderer, or, well, a lot bit of a philanderer, and more than a little corrupt, but he wasn't a violent psychopath who would invent criminal charges and then kill you and rape your family if you didn't agree to pay him. In fact, the man actually had a bit of charisma, something that his brother sorely lacked. To many, Cockery's rule had not become associated with the Ashanti Empire's decline, but with the relatively good old days. Even Owosuansa, the reformist advisor to Mensa Bonso, had become privately disillusioned with Mensa Bonso's sudden authoritarian turn after 1880. Prince Ansa had instead offered his support to the exiled King Kakari, who he saw as a more likely candidate to promote his agenda of social and educational reform. His decision to support Kakari, as a side note, basically killed any remaining goodwill that he possessed with the British Infanti, as the colonial government wrongly perceived Kakri as the most fervently anti-British politician in the Ashanti Empire, and saw Ansa's support as clear treachery against his old homeland of Britain. Meanwhile, many rebel kings and Omanhenes of southern Ashantiman also threw their hats behind the former Ashantihene. These kings had just undergone a long period of having their rights stomped on and ignored by a despotic, centralized king from Komasi in the form of Mensa Bonsul. But who's really to say that Kwako Joa II wouldn't act similarly to his predecessor? I mean, we don't even know that guy. Who knows what he'll act like? But you know who hadn't stomped on their rights? Kakari. So, while Komasi fell in line with Owosu Koko and his son Kwako Joa II, Bekwai, Dedease, and other rebellious southern provinces demanded that Kakari be reinstalled. Civil war seemed to be just on the horizon. The powder keg was ignited on August 3rd. On that day, Kakari's supporters decided to commit the ultimate unthinkable act. The Ashanti Empire had had succession disputes before, but it had never come this far. In front of his convened followers, Kakari was installed as the new Ashantihene. The scandal here was that the Ashantihene was not only a political position, but a religious one as well. Remember, the Ashantihene's dual role, symbolized by the two holiest ceremonial swords kept in the royal armory, were to serve his duties to the state and, just as importantly, to the ancestors. It was the Ashantihene's responsibility to defend the ancestors' honor, punish anyone who would demean them, and ensure that all proper worship was conducted to honor them. Having two Ashantihenes was like having two popes or two caliphs. Yes, these things happen sometimes, but it wasn't supposed to be that way. It violated the Akom's social and spiritual order. Sure, there had been succession disputes before, but it had never gotten this serious. Such a violation was a grave challenge to the legitimacy of Kwakocho II, one which Koko had to respond to with haste if his son's rule was to survive. In Komasi, Koko readied his army for war, while Kakari did the same. The resulting battle was a seven-day-long slog. As the two armies met for their first clash at the small village of Breman, it was Kakari's faction who emerged the victors. However, after receiving reinforcements from Kumasi, Koko's army turned the tide and inflicted an immense counterattack on Kakri's force. In the resulting chaos, many of Kakri's top supporters were either captured, like the king of Bekwai, or committed suicide by gunpowder explosion to avoid the humiliation of defeat. Kakri's forces held on for a few more days, but were ultimately routed. The former Ashantihene himself fled the battlefield and went into hiding from which he would never emerge. Meanwhile, in Komasi, the new Ashantihene, Kwakojo II, was, for the first time, without imminent threat to his rule. He began flexing his political muscles. Long relegated to being the political puppet of his mother and father, 
Kwako Joa II was finally in a position where he could turn himself from a political object into a political agent. However, this wasn't necessarily for the best. His father, Owosukoko, had always viewed this conflict with Kakari as a minor road bump, nothing irreconcilable. After his victory, the plan was to offer a shocking degree of clemency. Kakari would be allowed to live in comfortable exile. His family and supporters would be pardoned if only they pledged loyalty to his son, and all could continue as relatively normal. This was just a legitimate change of government, after all. Nothing more. Well, Kwako Joa II was a lot less forgiving than his father. And, now empowered with the authority of the Golden Stool, he made sure that his far more punitive reaction won the day. The new Ashantahene feigned an aura of clemency, and made a public invitation to all of Kakari's supporters and family to come to Komasi, where they would receive official pardoning. 2,000 of Kakari's allies accepted the invitation, while many others were wary of the possibility of a trap, and instead fled into the British Gold Coast. Kakri's supporters who had showed up were promptly herded into a locked compound and gunned down by palace guards. However, the most shocking decision was what Kwakojoa opted to do with Kakri himself. The fugitive former king had been discovered, captured, and brought back to Komasi in chains. What happened next is a matter of contention, but both versions of events are shocking in their own right. One source, a contemporary letter sent by Owosukoko to the British colonial office, claimed that Kakari was imprisoned in a tiny, squalid cell. There, he would persist for several weeks, surviving on rotten food and scraps given by the guards, before he eventually contracted a fatal case of dysentery. However, another letter, one sent by a relatively minor in Safohene, indicates that Kakari was actually hauled into the royal palace and force-fed his own chewing sticks by the Adamhene until he'd choked to death. Believe it or not, the second story is actually more flattering to Kwakojoa, as a bloodless execution by asphyxiation, even in such an unusually cruel manner, was viewed as a more dignified death worthy of an Ashantehene, compared to succumbing slowly to a painful disease. Regardless of which version of events is true, either one would have been shocking to the Ashanti public. Never before had a former Ashantehene been executed, the first Ashantahene to be impeached, Kusio Bodom, was granted a comfortable house arrest and eventually interred with the funerary honors becoming of an Ashantahene. Even Kakri himself not that long ago, during his impeachment, was allowed to leave Komasi in peace and was even allowed to bring thousands of friends and attendants with him. The decision to kill a living Ashantahene was way beyond the norm of Ashanti political culture, and illustrates perhaps better than anything else just how far the Ashanti political order had fallen. On the one hand, allowing Kakari to live in comfortable exile probably wouldn't have led to a lasting peace. It seems unlikely that Kakari would be willing to accept his exile, and would almost certainly make a play for the stool again. But, who knows, with his supporters scattered into the wind and clearly defeated, maybe Kakari should have been viewed more like an annoying yipping dog than an imminent danger to the state. On the other hand, executing the former Ashantahene and massacring his supporters guaranteed that peace was an impossibility. The Ashanti Empire, already reeling from several years of government by the despotic Mensabonso, could have welcomed the new change of pace of a merciful Ashantahene. But with this massacre, it was abundantly clear that Kwakojoa II's rule did not represent a shift to a kinder, gentler form of Ashanti government, but more of the same. If Kwakujo II planned to maintain stability in Shantiman, it would be through fear and force, just like his predecessor. Peace was no longer on the table.
Except, well, he didn't rule the empire through fear and force. Just two months after ascending to the Golden Stool, Kwakojoa II stopped ruling the empire altogether when he dropped dead. During normal times, such an unexpected death of a king likely still would have led to something of a succession crisis. During the 1880s, the result was a civil war. A real civil war. Yeah, you thought that overthrowing Mensa Bonzo or that week-long spat with Cockery was the titular civil war of this episode? No, that was only the prelude. What was about to happen next was a period of unprecedented violence and suffering in Ashanti history. The power vacuum created by Kwakojoa II's sudden and unexpected demise essentially disintegrated any remaining illusion of the existence of a united Ashanti kingdom. In normal circumstances, the solution to this problem was pretty simple. Convene the Ashanti Manshamu and elect a new king. And that's what Queen Mother Yaacha and Owosukoko tried to do. But good luck convincing anyone to show up to a meeting in Kumasi just a couple months after that trick that Kwakojo II had pulled on Kakari supporters. Come to Kumasi, there's a big meeting that will be very peaceful. Yeah, I'm sure that will end well. Fool me once, as they say. But if the Ashanti government was to function, this standstill couldn't go on forever. The negative ramifications of lacking a head of state were starting to set in. For starters, the Ashantahene's most important duty of state was to act as the highest legal authority, especially in matters of civic importance. Disputes between Omanhene or questions of stool succession were the biggest problem. With no Ashantahene, these matters could not be resolved through a legal authority. If an important Omanhene died, his nephews would have to fight for the position, not with words in a courtroom, but with armies on a battlefield. Same goes for disputes over land or jurisdiction. In 1884, these disputes began to pile up, and as it became increasingly clear that there would be nobody to resolve them, Ashantiman exploded into violence. A minor succession dispute between two Omanhenes erupted into an outright war, sucking in each of the Omanhenes' neighbors as well as they were forced to take sides. Meanwhile, in southern Ashantiman, a series of border raids and land disputes between the independent kingdom of Adansi and the city of Bekwai resulted in fighting which escalated into a war between the Adansis and Bekwai. In the absence of an Ashantihene to organize an official Ashanti response, the Bekwaihene, a new king recently appointed a month prior by Kwakojoa II, decided to handle the issue himself. He organized an alliance of nearby Omanhenes with the uniting purpose of recapturing the breakaway Ashanti territory, raised an army of around 10,000 men, and embarked on a path to Adansi. If he could retake the rebellious province, then he would plainly assert himself as the most powerful politician in Ashantiman, and maybe even become the kingmaker of the next Ashantihene. His army was promptly crushed by the more experienced and better equipped Adansi soldiers, with even the Bekwahene himself falling in battle. His nephew would take over and, after struggling to fight off fierce Adansi counterattacks, appeal to Owosukoko for help. Koko, desperate to preserve the quickly fading image of Ashanti unity, sent 10,000 of his old soldiers to fight Adansi. With these reinforcements, the combined armies managed to crush the Adansi army, and occupied the countryside. There, they went on a rampage, taking out their frustration on the terrified Adansi. Most Adansi were forced to flee into the British protectorate, while those who were too slow were overwhelmed and butchered by the advancing Ashanti. By the end of the massacres, Adansiman was a mass grave. Everyone had either been killed or fled. Years later, a traveler would pass through Adansiman and observe the sad sight of an abandoned township, a once happy community destroyed by this gruesome war. There was something 
very mournful and pathetic about these empty villages, especially where little traces of the vanished inhabitants told of the life that had been so rudely interrupted. Wooden stools, spindle whorls, and fragments of cotton cloth lay among the ruins of the houses, and in some of the overgrown compounds, cooking pots still food on the rude clay fireplaces, above heaps of long extinct ashes and half-burnt cigars. But still more sad and painfully significant of the tragedy that accompanied the village's demolition were the relics that lay hidden amongst the roots of the high grass that had overrun the compounds and obliterated the village streets. There, cleaned by the ants and bleached to porcelain whiteness by the burning suns, were numbers of human bones, the unsepulchred remains of those villagers who had been slaughtered amongst the burning ruins of their forest home. Much like the war against Draben nine years prior, the Bekwahene's conquest of Adansi was technically a victory. He had set out to conquer new territory and succeeded. However, through the brutal conquest of process, they ensured that they were, in a sense, conquering nothing. They destroyed Adansi, the thriving land of gold mines and yam groves. In their place, they conquered a land of deserted villages and grass-covered bones. Bekwai itself would soon be on the receiving end of this type of inglorious destruction that was all too common in this era. Two nearby towns who had opted not to aid the Bekwahene in his war against Adansi feared that if they didn't act quickly, they would be next on his list of places to conquer. So they launched a preventative strike against Bekwai, laying waste to the city's buildings and people alike. Bekwai, one of the four Kotoko cities of the Ashanti Empire, was now a shadow of its former glory. Its population was reduced to a fraction of its former size through a combination of fleeing refugees and mass murder. With Draben destroyed in 1875, Kumasi ravaged twice in 1874 and 1883, and now Bekwai lying in ruins, three of the four Kotoko cities had been destroyed. In the glory days of Ashanti hegemony, the rulers of these cities truly were Kotoko, the tree word for porcupine. The nobles who ruled them and the inhabitants that they ruled could not be touched. Oh, how times change. Now only one of the four remained unmolested. If you feel like I've thrown a lot at you in these last few minutes, and that you left confused and beleaguered and not really knowing what's going on, that is intentional. That was the nature of the Ashanti Civil War. This was not a war with two sides fighting, with front lines, turning points, and easily understood motivations. This was not even one civil war. This was dozens of civil wars at a time. The collapse of Ashantiman from a unified empire into disparate warlord states. This period is far too complex to realistically condense here, and we'll touch a bit on a few more developments in our next episode, but suffice it to say that this chaotic state of war was in no way limited to the southern region of Bekwai and Adansi. No, this was the status quo throughout the entirety of Ashantiman. Cities destroyed towns, towns destroyed villages, villages destroyed cities, neighbors killed neighbors, and brothers killed brothers. Meanwhile, in the far north of Ashanti influence, the long-subjugated tributaries of Dagbon and Jaman broke away. These kingdoms had long been forced by the Ashanti Empire to pay tribute at gunpoint, but now there was no Ashanti Hene to point the gun at them. The Gonja people of Salaga and its surroundings similarly exited the crumbling Ashanti fold. For the first time since the life of Osetutu, Ashanti influence was now limited entirely to the area of Ashantiman. 
Throughout this season, I have referred to the Ashanti state as an empire. An empire is typically defined as a state that rules over multiple, diverse peoples and territories acquired through conquest. At this point, the Ashanti do not do so. They rule over only Ashantis and Ashantiman. So we can confidently say that, starting in 1881, there is no more Ashanti Empire. There was, for a time, not even an Ashanti kingdom, but dozens of small Ashanti kingdoms, each vying for conquest or survival. Except, this isn't where our story ends. While the civil wars of 1884 through 1888 did lead to a brief period of non-existence, the territories of Ashantiman would not stay disunited forever. Join us next episode when we meet the man who will end the four-year-long civil war and rule as the last independent king of the Ashanti, a man literally named Savior of the Nation, Ajiman Prempa I. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then we would love it if you could support the show. You can do this through supporting us monetarily at patreon.com slash historyofafrica, providing the show with a rating or a view on whichever platform you listen on, or sharing the show with anyone who you think might be interested in learning more about African history. This episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Naomi Konakia, Ayofagbamie, Morgan Blackmore, Sarah Mpenza, Tobias Tungland, Dimitri, Emmanuel Zaldi, Alexander Travis, B.B. Milliam, Conrad Schwenke, Travis Bell, Johnny Knowles, Ose Kwame, Godfrey Sebelabie, Diz R.H., Evan Edwards, Pascal Onwokocha, Joe Maxwell, Nkechi Nwabodike, and Shayun Alrontimain, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really means a lot.